Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Johanna Hanning. She's recently published an accessible modern translation of essential speeches from Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War that takes readers to the heart of the profound insights on diplomacy, foreign policy, and war. Why do nations go to war? What are citizens willing to die for? What justifies foreign invasion? And does might always make right? For nearly 2,500 years, students, politicians, political thinkers, and military leaders have read the eloquent and shrewd speeches in Thucydides' history. In How to Think About War, Johanna Hanink presents the most influential and compelling of these speeches in an elegant new translation accompanied by an enlightening introduction, informative headnotes, and the original Greek on facing pages. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Johanna Hanning. Johanna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Scott. So you are a classicist, and you have written, you've wrote an introduction to and did a new translation of Thucydides' How to Think About War. Like, at some point, I mean... Is this a? This seems like a daunting task. It's like if somebody translates a classic text. I mean, that seems like, gosh, you know, you're. It's like covering something, or like as a, as, a, as 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 an artist or something. I mean, why why did you want to do this? I really like the idea that it's like covering something. Um, well, I think in some ways it wasn't maybe as daunting as it could have been because I wasn't translating all of Thucydides, and that's a very long and difficult work. But you're absolutely right. Just that just to translate these speeches and particularly these speeches, which are the greatest hits of Thucydides, that was challenging. I mean, they're very famous texts. They're texts that have been read quite a lot, but I did think that the translations that are out there weren't perhaps written in the the freshest version of the English language, the sort of most contemporary version that we have. And and so it would be worth retranslating these speeches for a contemporary audience. Did you get to choose the ones you wanted to do or, or was the press like, hey, these are the greatest hits? I mean, how, how was the playlist put together? The playlist was put together. I think that Rob Tempio, the editor, when he first approached me about doing this, he mentioned in particular the funeral oration. And I said, well, yeah, there are maybe he mentioned the Melian dialogue also, which I think are probably the two most famous speeches of the cities. Um But then when I was thinking about that, I thought that it would make sense to flesh that out. So Rob had actually envisioned a a shorter book, a considerably shorter book, but I thought it would make sense to flesh out with um, the rest of the speeches that are given by Athenians that have become sort of canonical international relations texts today. So those include the Mytilenean debate, the Sicilian debate, so on the advent of the Sicilian expedition, that by kind of Fleshing it out, we could get a bigger picture, a sort of bird's eye view of the Athenian approach to policy in this period. Yeah, and that, no, it, it's interesting. The funeral speech, you, this is honoring kind of the dead, it, it, you know, in, in in the you know sort of in the midst of the of the 
uh, of this war that Athens is fighting with Sparta. And it, it sort of, I mean, it's kind of uh, making Athens great again, right? I mean, it kind of extols all the great virtues of Athens. And, and yet there was a plague and Thucydides, uh, Thucydides like suffered fr- from the plague. I mean, he kind of says like, look, Athens, he, he has, he, he, he has a pretty honest portrait of, of what's going on at the ground as well. Right. I mean, some of this is, he's trying to sort of that, uh, you know, it, it is 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 full orbed. Well, I think that what he's doing in the funeral oration, and then what he's doing by juxtaposing the funeral oration with the account of the plague, is that he's really exploring. And this is one of the things he does incredibly artfully throughout the work. Is he's exploring the difference between the ideal and the reality. And I think that if you look at the funeral oration, it might almost not be so much making about making Athens great again, but the sort of counter slogan, which is that Athens is great, already is great, right, right, still right. is great will always be great. Um, and that's something that is is discussed a lot in conjunction with the funeral orations, the way that this whole kind of genre of speeches, because Pericles' was the most famous, but there are funeral orations delivered regularly in Athens, that sort of the purpose of this oratorical genre was to project this idea of Athens as this kind of eternal, unchanging ideal that Contemporary generations were always supposed to aspire to this standard that had been sent by the forefathers um, and that Athens would just kind of remain outside of time and space as this completely idealized shining city on the hill. And that's what Pericles gives us in the funeral oration. And that's what the order, the funeral orders tend to give us, because we do have some other examples surviving from the genre. But Thucydides and juxtaposing that with the account of the plague and the sort of anarchy that breaks out in the in the wake of that, he really shows that there's a huge distance between the ideal and the the actuality, which I think is something that it's is um of great contemporary sort of resonance today. Yeah, it's in- it's interesting too, because I think as moderns, we look back at ancient historians and think, you know, I mean, they they seem to like make speeches up or 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 edit on the fly or, you know, insert things that, you know, they they editorialize in ways that we would say historians shouldn't do that now. But Thucydides is pretty honest, though. I mean, he's he's he he puts his cards on the table, and so it, it, there's a, a, a level at which it's almost maybe he's more honest than contemporary historians because he's like, yeah, I'm telling a story here, and it's important. I've got a point of view, but I'm trying to show my point of view through as many sides as possible. Where I, I feel like today, often historians are sort of we often feign a detachedness in mm-hmm. history that that's not that nobody really has, right? Well, that's exactly a point made by this wonderful, um, now deceased French historian, Nicole Rowe. She wrote this famous article called Thucydides is Not a Colleague, where she talks about how historians today tend to see Thucydides as the kind of objective, detached historian that modern historians want to see themselves as. But, you know, on the one hand, that's what her point is there is that his is much more of a literary project than that. But I would argue that I think, you know, it's also a myth or a fantasy that today historians are, are truly are as objective and detached as all that. So I think it all has to, it comes down in a sense to what you value in a historical narrative. And I think that's a question that's much more up for grabs than, than people might make it out to be. So Thucydides says at the beginning that in his speeches, his methodology is going to be to record either, you know, as best he can, what people said or what they ought to have said, given the circumstances. And so, I mean, do we, 
value? I mean, what is the difference between how we value what was actually said and then somebody's version of what really should have been said? And I think it's interesting that the, this idea of kind of composing speeches for historical characters like that, it, it died out a lot more recently than people would think. So one of the first accounts of the events of the American Revolution, which was written in Italian, actually, John Adams gets a hold of a copy of it and he writes to Jefferson and says, this book is really funny because the author has given us speeches like Thucydides or Herodotus. He's actually written speeches for us, but they were sort of amused by this. But I mean, it was a tradition that, you know, persisted until just a couple hundred years ago. And some level, right, that shows the love of the subject matter that you could – there's an honesty about, hey, I, I, I'm studying this because I think this is important. And my being able to compose speeches shows I've studied the person so much that I can I, – I think I know what they would have said. Yeah, I mean I think it, it's sort of um... – also, I mean, we see this in a way in all, in all these television historical dramas. You know, they say that now, thanks to TV, the you know people living today have a much more vivid image of the past in their minds. But I mean, wh- whether you're watching, you know, The Crown or you know any sort of historical drama on TV, dialogue is being written for these characters. Um, and and I think that there's a there's a sort of value to that exercise, which in fact was a kind of rhetorical exercise in antiquity that people do in schools is think, okay, so you put Queen Elizabeth or whoever in this particular situation, what would she do? What would she say? Yeah, and it's interesting too. With uh, Thucydides seems to be doing differently, right? Like Homer and Herodotus are writing war histories, right? But they're writing about conflicts with Greeks and other people. Here, Thucydides thinks the fact that you've got Greeks against Greeks, two sort of city states at the height of their power, and the fact that everybody else gets drawn into the conflict, that this he sense he senses that, hey, this is actually gonna be kind of something worth recording, right? I mean he thinks that this it's it, and I guess he was right. I mean, he, he had some sense that this moment would transcend its own uh kind of anchor to history and and and, and sort of speak to generations. I mean, it's it, it, that seems incredibly perceptive. Well, I mean, I, I, I think he was incredibly perceptive. I think that's absolutely true. But I think there's a little bit of an irony to that, which is that for Thucydides, it, it became partially self-fulfilling prophecy, because the reason that the war is still so famous to us today is not, you know, Thucydides' history is not sort of just evidence for something that's really famous. It's kind of the reason that it is really famous, because we just don't have a huge amount of other sources, especially ones that are completely independent from Thucydides for this war. I mean, we have inscriptions from Athens and from outside of Athens, we have the Attic dramas, the comedies and tragedies that that allude, whether directly or indirectly, to the war. But I think part of the reason that this war is one, so famous, and two, understood as having the particular kind of significance that we understand as having today is because Thucydides recorded it with this unbelievably successful narrative that had a very particular, that gave it a very particular shape. Whereas somebody writing about it differently, I mean, if Herodotus had really taken this as his subject, we might have a very different idea of how this war, why this war unfolded, sort of what it was like on on the different sides, the course of it, and so on and so forth. So in some ways, it becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. It's interesting too, right? Like Thucydides, unlike say Homer, you know, he doesn't, he has references to religion, but he doesn't have the gods as supernatural actors, right? He, 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 he realizes religion is an actor on the ground, right? Because it, it plays into the culture of Athens and motivations and things like that. But he doesn't have the gods acting. I mean, he, he really, which seems like a kind of, it's almost like a, he seems like 
along with the Socratic tradition, kind of like a demythologizer. Like he, he's doing, it seems like he's doing a little bit of demythologizing. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think he's much less interested in also sort of the supernatural than even than say Herodotus is. He's very interested in looking at, you know, what he says from the beginning that this kind of human nature, this human thing is the subject or is, is what he thinks is unchanging over time. So if you think the Greek word for a person is anthropos and he, it's the anthropinon, which is the human sort of condition, the human experience that really he takes as his subject. So he completely brings all of the, the causes and the, the course of the war down to earth. Though you're absolutely right, he does depict people, sorry, sort of reacting in a religious way. So famously, Nicias was someone who is very, very pious. But in Thucydides and, you know, the sort of historical sources, we we get the sense, the sense we're left with is that that piety actually ranged into superstition. Yeah, it's interesting, too, like that you, I mean, I think this is one of the great sort of debates over time, right? Does human nature change or not, right? And I think one of the reasons like people like science fiction so much is that you, you can change the window dressing, the technology, the post-apocalyptic or optimism, and yet we see that human beings don't change that much. And, and so, I mean, this is kind of part of his bet, right? That ultimately there are certain things about human nature that will speak uh, out, uh, you know, across time. Like people are not going to change that much. Of course, technology and culture, there are real differences, but but there's probably more continuity than discontinuity in the human condition, which is why he thinks people will still read this text, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, th- this is the, one of the, the things that people have criticized about Thucydides, um, particularly the um, anthropologist Marshall Sollins from the, who, for, at the University of Chicago in his book, Apologies to Thucydides, is that he doesn't really attend in the way that we might have expected or even that Herodotus does to the contingencies of culture, to the way that different cultures shape us. Um, one of the things that, you know, he does do is draw these very stark contrasts. Like he, he makes Athens sort of the opposite of Sparta in several ways, whereas Sparta is traditional, Athens is enterprising and prizes what's innovative. But apart from, you know, sort of pulling uh, these two sides of the war into these sort of two polar opposite camps. He doesn't really explore that. He's not that interested in the real specifics of culture. So I think that, but he does, you know, I think have insight into human motivations. I mean, I think that the drive for power kind of almost for its own sake is, is not something that I imagine has changed that much since his time or will yeah, change that much that, in the future. That's why we love house of cards. Right. I mean, <laughs> I mean, well, like, right, right. Right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, there's a sort of common – and, well, you know, you say House of Cards and that, that makes me think, okay, that, that also of Greek tragedy, which has proven to have this remarkably enduring appeal, and that one of the the sort of observations that's been made about Thucydides' own work is that within it, it's, the, the structure of it, kind of how things unfold, it's almost like a Greek tragedy where you get Athens as what today we would call, for better or worse, the tragic hero. So I think there's sort of similar similar aspects of, of both Thucydides and the ancient Greek tragedy that makes House of Cards appealing today. Yeah, I, it's interesting. You, I mean, Nietzsche says that, and I think in Twilight Vitals, that Thucydides, Thucydides is his cure for Platonism. Like, like whatever he, he kind of uh, – is tiring of the universals and the abstractions and the living in the ivory in, in, in the world of the forms and the clouds. He just reads Thucydides. I, I, I mean, you, you get that. Like, I mean, but on, on, 
but in an interesting way, though, both Thucydides and Plato are kind of trying to write lessons that transcend their time, even though, you know, Thucydides might be trying to do it bottom up in a way that Plato, you know, isn't there's I mean, I feel like Nietzsche there is maybe putting Plato and and Thucydides in in too much contrast. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. I mean, I think that the, the last thing if you're really tired of reading a Socratic dialogue, the last thing you want to read is like the Melian dialogue. Right, where you, you, you have sort of these very complex, abstract arguments. And this is one of the things that makes Thucydides' Greek notoriously difficult, is just how abstract the Greek is. Um, and I think that that's something certainly that, that Plato and Thucydides share in common. And I, I know that there's actually been a lot of scholarship in the last couple of years, and there's, there's more. I know someone writing a book on this uh, just about how, how much they do, in fact, have in common. Yeah, it's interesting. Like... As a classicist, right? Like, I mean, I, it seems like there'd be nothing more depressing at a cocktail party in America than being a scientist or a classicist, right? <laughs> I feel like we're kind of anti-science as a culture, like, and, and we generally don't know our history that well. I mean, how did you, why did you want to become a classicist? I mean, this seems like, gosh, I'm going to have to explain what I do at cocktail parties a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of times people think that classics just sort of means like any, you know, book that we would call a classic. And I think that that's the discipline's fault. It's not sort of the society at large's fault. It's very weird that classics is called classics. Um, but um, I, I think that being sort of in the humanities is certainly, you know, kind of depressing business these days. Um, what I, what really drew me to classics in the first place was I, and it's a story that probably 90% of other classicists have is that I just had really, really good teachers. And I actually wound up dedicating this book to the teacher. So my professor of great books at the university of Michigan, who was a sort of institution in himself that gave, um, you know, in great books, he gave us this series of lectures, particularly the first semester I read, which was, I think Homer to the death of Socrates, to the apology of Socrates and um, the Phaedo in which Socrates actually dies. And he just kind of gave this panorama of Greek literature, looking at how these texts are in dialogue with each other. And that was something that really drew me to it. And he also happened to be my Greek teacher during the same semester. So it was really, you know, just having someone who successfully kind of conveyed the, the excitement. And I think that the continued relevance of, of these sorts of texts, who could really draw out the points that, you know, when Thucydides raised a point that we still would want to think about today. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower. 
Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalker, Greg Johnson, and Kai Winkhenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. When you're like, how do you, so you, you're a, a professor, not just a scholar. I mean, how do you make those texts alive for students the way that professor at University of Michigan made them alive for you? I mean, is it like, how do you approach that test? Because that seems really daunting, especially when everybody is just on their phone all the time. I think it is really daunting. Yeah. And I was, I was lucky to, that there weren't really, people weren't using phones then. Um, <laughs> Cause I probably would have been one of the people on them. But um, I think that, you know, the, the, with just a little bit of nudging, I think students will see, and not just in these texts, but in all sorts of texts. I mean, this is sort of the power of literature writ large. I mean, they'll, they'll see things that they find relevant in terms of, I mean, not that they apply one-to-one to some aspect of the modern day, but that they, you know, the texts pose questions or raise themes that they're also thinking about or wondering about, or they didn't even realize that they were wondering about. And I think that today's students really are still you know, very interested in this kind of literature. Um, I think that part of it is is a little bit that lost art of lecturing that my former professor embodied. We don't do as much of that today. And, and there's been some discussion actually about whether there should be kind of more again, because I think that you know, I, I do, you know, maybe remember one or two classes from college where there was a, a sort of lively seminar. But I think that the classes that I really remember were when I had someone really charismatic who was willing to, I think, take risks in front of the um, the classroom. Because I think that another thing today, for better or worse, is that, you know, everything, you know, we become so sort of so specialized and people are very reticent to to sort of put forth grand narratives. And I think that, that that's a very healthy reticence and hesitation. Um, but on the other hand, I think that part of what I, I really enjoyed about those lectures was that this professor, for various reasons, wasn't afraid to stand in front of a classroom in front of, you know, 300 people and kind of propose his account of what Greek literature was, where, I mean, I don't know if you find that kind of, you know, bullshiness today as often. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because I was, I, I just, uh, the last guest, I think on the podcast, Carl Zimmer, it was New York Times science writer. We were talking about how at the end of the conversation, like Aristotle didn't know as much about the world as we do, right? The physical world. He knew everything he could do for basically for his time. I mean, you know, he's mm-hmm. one of these polymaths, like, but he felt more at home in it because he saw a connection between biology and politics and ethics and like these are, and, and, and of course, you know, specialization has its, has its merits and they're, you know, I wouldn't want to be pre-modern, but yet that, that, we feel more alienated in the world, even though we know more about it. Like we know about electrons and this and that, but we, but without being able to tell a grand story, I mean, that's kind of what human beings are motivated by, right? Like telling big stories. And so this is part of like what we lose. I mean, this is why books like this are inspiring because human beings like big stories. I think that's really true. And I, I think that, um, I mean, it's a kind of controversial position, but I guess it, it is one that, I haven't, which I've written about is, first of all, let me say that I think Aristotle, I mean, he knew in a different way is one way of looking at it. And um, I think that in terms of these kinds of big stories and grand narratives, the problem is that we, you know, by critiquing them, we sort of gave up on them, which meant that the only ones still in place are the old ones. 
you know, however much they've been critiqued and deconstructed. And what I would really like to see is more kind of grand narratives put forth as possibilities by voices that historically have not, you know, been able to, to get their own narratives into circulation. I'd like to see more of these kinds of big, you know, what have been called these uncle books, like these big kind of books about, you know, about this or that sort of era or war or huge theme that are written by women and people of color just to get sort of more version. I think because the more versions of grand narratives, the better in a way. And I think it's a, it's a particular kind of thinking that comes with trying to construct those and then trying to deconstruct them. But what we're left with to a certain extent now is just like, you know, the, the, whenever, you know, our grad students have to prepare for their orals and, you know, go back and read, okay, somebody that writes a whole history of Greek literature, they're still reading translations of, um, you know, old, you know, German works by, you know, white male classicists working a hundred years ago. Yeah. Who, I mean, what kind of stories would you like to see told? Like who, I mean, how would you imagine if you're like, you know, uh, you know, kind of writing a, a piece of fiction set 30 years in the future, what kind of stories are being told in your ideal world? You mean through, through literature, through history? Yeah, through, through, yeah, through, 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 through people in the discipline. Like, I mean, if you oh. could like, if you could have a fantasy kind of uh, football team or whatever, your fantasy in the future uh, of classicists, um, that's it, it, diversified and yet not sheepish about big right. sweeping stories. Like, what would you like to see told? Um, I would like to see um, accounts of Rome and Greece sort of as imperial states written by people who are actually really trained in colonial and post-colonial sort of theories and, and ways of viewing literature. Um, I think we've got a couple ones on deck actually coming out, but I, I would like to see more large accounts of Greece and Rome as part of a broader kind of, you know, not even just Mediterranean, but global antiquity. Um, so in some ways, I guess I, I would like to see the narratives become even more ambitious. Yeah, it's kind of like you're kind of advocating, it sounds like, let a thousand flowers bloom. Like it, instead of deconstruct, let's construct. And the idea mm -hmm. is like, I mean, T.S. Eliot says he always prefers descriptions over explanations. Because if you're explaining, you know, then the, the, the ex explanation sort of rules out other explanations. But if we view big stories as descriptions, then multiple big stories will get us a fuller picture of what it means to be human and where we've been and where we're going, right? Yeah, I, I, com I, I think that's true to an extent. And I think that any big story, I mean, in this, you know, the, and this is what people say actually about Thucydides is that this is what Nicola Rose is that the, the fact that he has constructed his narrative in a certain way means that he kind of cherry picks what he includes and doesn't include because he wants that structure to stay in place. So any grand narrative of something is going to necessarily sort of cherry pick the evidence. And so if we get as many kind of people who have different priorities and different perspectives on evidence, bringing in different kinds of evidence to their narratives. I mean, I think that that, that you know, only kind of increases the, the sort of pool of knowledge from which we have to draw. And I, I think that, you know, the sort of constructing and deconstructing are really sort of two sides of the seesaw. They're, they're really important to balance each other out. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, yeah. If no, imagine you are approached by some, you know, politician and say, look, like you're an expert in, you know, arguably the most influential document on war and foreign policy. We want you just in the cabinet to just, you know, give us feedback. I mean, what would you like? How would you like? What would you say to like politicians today if you were advising them in the American scene? Like, what what would you say? Look, this is what I've learned from Thucydides and and and, and studying this stuff. Like, 
here's, you know, whatever applications they can make, here they are. Um, I think the first thing I would say is I think that that politician should really think about why they think that Thucydides is so important. Um, because, I mean, people do tend to treat this text as almost sort of biblical, as, as if you could just kind of, um, if you just analyze it correctly, it will ultimately hold all the answers. And I, I, I wonder if to a certain extent that is part and parcel of the kind of thinking that people, that gets people in so much trouble on the IR stage today. But on the other hand, I, I do think that one, um, you know, one one reason I find myself thinking about classical Athens in, in connection with contemporary politics is that, you know, there's a lot of discussion right now about the, the American moment kind of being over. And I think that what's really interesting is that with classical Athens, where the democracy lasts about 200 years, right? We're almost 250 into ours, but there's lasted about 200 years. And then you had kind of like, but for the second half of that, a lot of it was sort of reflection on the empire that had once been and sort of trying to make sense of what had happened and what the role that Athens needed to play in the world was going to be. And I think that that's very instructive because if we think that we're at this particular point with the U.S., it's 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 very interesting to see a complete ancient story about a, a people who for you know several decades had this very strong empire and then afterwards spent a good century thinking about who they were going to be now without it. Um, so I think that, that that I would even see Thucydides as kind of, you know, he's depicting the fall of Athens, you know, through largely Athens' own mistakes. But I think that Thucydides becomes on the starting point for a lot of this literature of the fourth century in Athens, which gets a lot less play than the stuff from the height in the, or, you know, what we call the height in the fifth century. Yeah. And it's it almost sounds like you're saying like, look, look at, don't like, don't look to Thucydides to give us answers. Look to his example of, telling a story that's trying to tell it from many sides and get all the data. And like, why aren't we figuring out how to tell our story in the kind mm -hmm. of way, like, it, it sounds like you're saying his, his, it's not like th th this is a text that survived, but like we can learn not just not like, oh, okay, if we, this is the template for foreign policy, but the thing to learn is like the art of storytelling. I think, I mean, there, there's certain dimension of that, but I also think that through city is like any other, you know, text is probably most useful in terms of his power to pose questions that maybe people haven't thought of. It's not that he ha has the answers to the questions we already have. I think it's that he poses questions that we haven't even thought about. Yeah. And it's funny because I think when you look at the commentariat or whatever, or the punditry, it's like no one surprises us with their questions, right? Like we turn on the news, like we kind of know the questions are going to be asked. It's like talking point over talking point. And it seems like uh, very seldom in public discourse does somebody pose a surprising question that stymies us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that, I mean, that is true. It becomes this kind of, you know, my, my parents are sort of MSNBC parents and they, you know, have that just blaring all day, every day. And it's just unbelievable how repetitive I think it is. Um, but I think that, you know, one thing that both Thucydides and Plato do, and that this is a way of thinking about both how they work together and what kinds of questions they can pose is they really are constantly inviting people to think about what their the terms they're speaking in mean. So, you know, most of so the Socratic dialogues are really about trying to define something, whether it's excellence or courage or what have you. And um, in Thucydides, a lot of the kind of um, give and take is about, so what do we mean by justice? What do we mean by expediency? How do we understand the relationship between these two things? So they, they, the speakers in both of these, um, in text by both of these authors 
really do a lot of kind of fundamental examination of the, the assumptions behind just the words that we use. Yeah, when I've had the, the privilege of teaching Plato to undergrads, I've always started like with what's a what's a sport like, and everybody says well basketball, football, and then when we say okay, but what's essential? What what is it, what's it, it, it does it have to be teams? Does it have to we get into chess and is pottery a sport? If anything is passionate, where you're exerting energy, and it, that's it. It's a good exercise, right? In not that necessarily uh, will come to these essentialist answers. We've solved it for all time, but just thinking about what we mean when we say things, it, something about that is a good exercise in human excellence, right? I mean, I, I feel well, like I think when that's we, good. yeah, time Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a good exercise in and of itself. Well, to go back to the example that you, you brought up sort of towards the beginning is that, okay, we say make America great again, or America is already great. What, you know, what maybe your Socrates would say was, okay, well, what, what is something that's great, you know, to, you know, Simeus define what is great. Cause I mean, that's not something that's, you know, they haven't defined their terms. And I think, you know, in, in either case. Yeah. It's like, it's sort of like, I mean, one of my favorite dialogues is the Euthyphro, right? Like, is it just cause the gods love it or, you know, or, or do the gods love it? Cause it's just, that's just such a great question. And all the side questions that come in the dialogue are amazing. Like just a really good question and kind of dialectical, kind of rigorous thinking about the question conversationally that like we see better questions when we have that kind of discourse and, you know, we learn more about ourselves. I think that's, I mean, I think that's true. And I think that this is one of the value of, you know, again, both Plato and Thucydides to a large extent is that be, they, what they really depict is thought and action. So something in the Melian dialogue, you know, there's a depiction of the Athenians and the Melians sort of thinking through this question, not only of what the Melians should do, but about how sort of people should act in, with an eye to justice and expediency and what the nature of hope is. So you you get kind of a, a performance of people thinking, which I think could be really useful nowadays, now that just the facts themselves are at everybody's fingertips all the time. We have no problem with just getting the data. But the question is sort of always one of, of how do we, what do we do with it? And, and what is the process of thinking that I think it, it, it is something that is really a great concern of a lot of the um, the classical Athenian text is sort of modeling that process of thinking through a problem. Yeah. Harry Frankfurt, who wrote this great book called On Bullshit, which I think should be required reading for every undergraduate. <laughs> but he wrote this subsequent book called On the Truth. And it's like a, a, basically a monograph. It's like 60 pages. Of it. But he says that uh, knowing what facts and truths are and discovering them and employing them doesn't mean you have a passion for the truth because like the truth, because you can use facts and truths to kind of make the world in your own image. Mm -hmm. But he says, you know, part of what human development is, is we have to learn that there's a world outside of ourselves and we consider other people and other realities. And part of human maturation is realizing where we end and the world begins. And, and that those kind of dialogues, right? Like really part of their great things for students, for anybody who's a student, of the human condition is it, it knocks you off balance and, and helps you see how big the world outside you is, right? And we're so much mm -hmm. with the internet, we just, we, we try to colonize the world and we get fat, like, I mean, they've sh that studies have shown, right? You get more education, you just get better at confirmation bias sometimes. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, these, like many other texts from many other literary traditions, I think help remind us that there are different versions of the truth too. I mean, people have different ways of understanding what is true. Um, and it, this is something that I've actually been working on a little bit between classical Athens and the, the sort of contemporary political moment is, you know, what people sometimes call psychic truths or spiritual truths. So I think that, for example, the president really believes that there were more people at his 
inauguration than ever before. I mean, I think no matter how much data he got to the contrary, it's sort of like a felt truth that this is something that kind of should be true and therefore is true. And I think there's some interesting parallels for this that, you know, in, in classical Athenian literature and that there's sort of just different ways of knowing things, you know, that Socratic reasoning is a sort of different process by which to arrive at a, a form of knowledge that is a different form of knowledge than, you know, what's the result of a Google search. A lot of our listeners, like here in this conversation, like would love to wade into classical literature, I think. Like they like the idea of it, but it's so daunting. Like, I mean, you know, maybe you slept through too many classes in college or, you know, you're, and then all of a sudden you're, you're, uh, you're like, oh gosh, I care about the things I should have cared about as an undergraduate. Where would you say somebody starts? Like, hey, here's how to, you know, get a little wisdom from, the classical tradition, where would you say, hey, here's where you start? Anybody could start here. Well, I think that, I mean, what's very exciting is Emily Wilson's new translation of the, or newish translation of the Odyssey. I mean, it's just really um, sort of beautifully done. Um, she just won a MacArthur Award, which is very exciting. And, uh, you know, not only for her, but I think for translation and for classical literature. And I, I think that, that that provides a very kind of accessible, but so very kind of um, instructive entry into classical literature is to start with her odyssey would be a really great place. I think if people are interested in um, prose, that there's a, a little, I think it's a penguin edition called like the last days of Socrates. Maybe, you know, more than I do. Yeah, that. yeah, 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 yeah. That I think is one, that's, you know, what Euthyphro, the apology, Crito, and then Phaedo. So these four dialogues is in antiquity, the platonic, the dialogues were organized in these tetralogies. So these four ones that are about the trial and death of Socrates, um, I think is, is a really great place to start. I think the end of the Phaedo is one of the most moving pieces of literature I've, I've ever read where the, the description of Socrates actually dying and being surrounded by these friends. And, um, so I think that for poetry and prose, those are the two places I would recommend. So how long, okay. So if somebody picks up that translation of the, is, is she at the university of Pennsylvania? Yeah. The translator. Yeah. Uh, if somebody picks that up, right. How long is it going to take them to read it? Like average reading, if they're an average reader, how many hours? Cause I think people are going to think this is a six month project or something. Re realistically, if they read for an hour a day, how many, how long would it take to read it? Well, the Odyssey is 24 books long and I think you can very reasonably read a book a day. So maybe a month. So in a month, mm -hmm. you could, you could just sit down after dinner or in the morning. Oh or yeah. Something and, and in a month, you could have read one of the greatest pieces of literature that we know of. Yeah, and one that um, has been very influential for a lot of other aspects of the tradition. I mean, we were just talking in my one of my Greek classes yesterday about, in, in some ways, sort of, you can understand an enormous amount of ancient Greek literature is fan fiction on the Iliad and the Odyssey, is fan fiction on Homer. Well, I, it, it's great, and you're obviously a fan of the classics, and, and uh, I'm envious of your students. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to translate uh, Thucydides and, and to talk with me about it. It's, it's really uh, – thank you for your work. Yeah, well, no, thank you really. Both were absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. 
It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks, Johanna, for coming on the podcast to check out How to Think About War. You won't regret it. Thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.